Every true and genuine Christian ever loves not only Christ, but his church. I mean, this should be obvious, right? When Christ saves us, he doesn't save us by ourselves, for ourselves. He saves us into a family, the historical and global community of the saints. By grace, we actually become members of Christ's body. And so we are not only dependent upon him as our head, but intimately and necessarily and tightly connected to each other. This means that the Christian life is a we endeavor. You can't live that thing out just listening to your favorite preacher on your AirPods while you walk the track. It's got to be lived out in real life, flesh and blood, face-to-face community. And so gospel-centered Christians always, always love their church. They give themselves to knowing and being known by the people, submitting to the pastors, benefiting from the means of grace, and loving whoever it is that Jesus brings through the doors. Nothing could be more healing than life in church community. And yet, a church can also be a place where great harm is done. Now, no church is ever going to be perfect. I mean, how can it be when it is filled with and led by sinners? So, totally, we should all have very patient, understanding hearts and really thick and humble skin when it comes to being a part of a church. But sometimes a church moves from imperfect to abusive. Its leaders prove to be wolves, hirelings, who are out for the advancement of themselves and of their brands and of their self-actualizations at the expense of the people. And when that happens, when the people just become pawns in the pastor's schemes, inevitably, it's the people who get hurt. My dad's experience of throwing himself fully into the life and mission of Parkway Christian Center in Revere, Massachusetts in the 80s was the ultimate mixed bag of church life. So much healing in him and so much healing through him in others, but also so much hurt. In the early 1980s, with its Aquanet hairspray and neon yellow leg warmers and roller skates, and every song had a synthesizer in it, my dad and mom were actually reeling. The bookstore that they had started and loved and spent 80 hours a week in had failed. It was gone, gone. And that failure took its toll on their souls and on their marriage. And yet, in his grace, Christ met them in that raw and awful season and opened a new door of ministry 200 miles up the Atlantic coast. We were longtime friends with Pastor Paul and Lynn, and the church was multiplying in so many different aspects. And he looked at us and he says, you know, we could use you here. 
what do you think about it? And like uh, we were still coming out of the bookstore fiasco and we said, uh, I don't know, Pastor Paul. He says, well, I'll tell you what, we have a marriage, seven coming up, and we want you and Margaret to lead it. And then Margaret and I looked at each other, are you kidding? So we said, well, we'll let you know. So back again, we drove from Boston to New York, spent many time praying, and then he says, okay, let's do it. We know Paul and Lynn and a few other people that came up from New York who said we can do it. We worked, we were on the bed looking at notes and stuff and fighting most of the time and saying, you did that and I did this and what happened? How did this dream go down? But we also loved each other. And that was a very important factor. So we said we did. So they gave us the date. It was going to be held at the Hilton in Linfield. And we came up on, uh, not too sure, it was a Thursday or Friday. We stayed over one of the uh, deacon's houses. And nothing was said what we were going to say. So, And Pastor Paul says, you're going to be expecting a big crowd. So that day came and that night came and Margaret and I were up on the um, podium there, and it was dark. You couldn't see the audience, and it was like kind of a curtain, and the curtain opened, and Margaret and I were standing back to back. There wasn't a word in the, a sound in the place, and I turned to the audience and the people, and I says, my name is Glenn. I live in New York, and I hate my wife. Margaret turned to the audience and said, I hate my husband. And you couldn't hear a whisper out there. And I'm, people were probably looking at you and saying, what kind of marriage seminar is this? I thought it was going to be sweet and kind and everything good. And then we started to get into really dig into why, God, why? Uh, we spent eight years. I quit the electrical trade. We brought our kids into all of this. And all of a sudden, we did great. And then the whole bottom fell out. So we talked about the, uh, didn't want to touch each other, didn't want to think. And at that time, I was also doing electrical work. So I was not around all the time. And mom was busy with Matthew and James at PS30. So it was a rough time. So now to bring that to reality to these people, why we hated each other, well, I guess we also blamed each other. And at the same time, might have threw a little less distrust in God leading us. But at the same time, here we were speaking to a packed house of couples. So God was so good to us that he did start to bring our hearts together. And a lot of the conversation and the things we spoke of, I, I was like in a trance. It was just so beautiful. So we went on and on and on, and we came to the end, and then we said, let's take a little break, and uh, if you have any questions. So we had a little break. We came back, and we didn't have one question. Eighty couples had their hand up in the air. <laughs> Everybody says, but let's, this, that's like my problem. I got the same type of problem, and so on and so forth. And then Pastor Paul got on the piano, played some music, and we were asking questions, and then that went on quite a while. And then, well, let's do what? Let's do this. Let's all come up. Who would like to come up to the to the front 
it was, wasn't an altar, but it was like an altar. And Margaret and I will pray with you an individual. So lo and behold, the whole church came forward. The whole, whole room came forward. There wasn't one person that needed help in their marriage, whether it be physical, financially, distrusting each other. So for like an hour, we prayed, and, and so did some of the deacons and Paul and the pastor's wife. And it was a great time of healing. And it seemed that a lot of people bonded to us and just felt uh, very at ease with us. So we did make a great um, loving connection with the people of Parkway Christian Center. And we looked at each other and says, well, why not? So we made the decision then and there that we will pack up and God was calling us to this new ministry up in Massachusetts. Saying goodbye is always hard. Always. And for my dad, this call to lead our family on mission up to Boston, in a sense, meant letting go of every relationship that he had forged for the first 40 years of his life. And this was a good thing, but it was also difficult on everybody. So here we are back in New York, getting ready to leave. We're looking around the house, all the things that we were part of our life that we would be bringing with us. Not only that, but the boys were in PS30, and Matthew went to a, a different school, PS45, so they would be taken away from their friends and their friendship. And not counting cousins and brothers and uncles. And Margaret had nine brothers and sisters, obviously not all in New York, but just leaving. And, and it was also difficult telling my parents that uh, we'll be leaving. But we also weren't leaving to like Indonesia or something. We were just going 250 miles up north. So we told everybody, told a lot of people in church that uh, we were leaving. And they were very surprised. We were a big part of the the uh, Calvary Tabernacle. They loved us. We loved them. I love Pastor Ben Crandall. He was my original mentor. And he gave me, I had a conversation with him. He says, if God's calling you, Glenn, he'll be with you. You might have difficult answers and questions, but he'll take care of you. So the time came for us to tell our best friends who lived around the corner that both Matthew, James, and Jennifer just lived together, day in, day out, sports, went to the same school, always together. So we're indeed having, having dinner, and I says to uh, Neris and, and Vicky, um, they were the first ones I met when I got out of Vietnam, and he had got drafted and came back. So I said, God's leading us to a new ministry, and it's not here. It's in Boston, Massachusetts, and like they went, uh, you could almost count the tears. And we were talking about it, and as we talked, Jennifer says to her mom, because they were so close, well, mom, when are we going? And Vicky says to Jennifer, I'm sorry, hon, but they're going and we're not. She jumped up, stormed out of the house, went on a stoop, and was crying and crying and crying. She thought the end of her life had come. 
Ironically, as soon as my dad got to Boston, he crashed. But there was a beauty in it. As always happens with gospel people, these Bostonians that he had just met, who he thought needed him to be strong for them and him to minister to them, were actually the ones who ministered to him. You get to Boston, we stayed in the parsonage, so we were moving along pretty good, and then I got very sick. I didn't know what it was. I was uh, going to the bathroom. I was bleeding. I was weak. Finally, I went to the hospital. They rushed me to uh, William Hospital, and this very, very good gastrologist said, uh, "You need. we need to see you right away. So they got me to have a colonoscopy, and I was so bad, they couldn't even operate. They weren't even going to give me a bag. says, we're going to medicate you, and uh, we're going to see that we can get you out of this. And at that time, it was all the couples and were visiting me, and, and Margaret spent day and night. We always had somebody taking care of Matthew and James. Day and night, she sat on the floor. She sat in the chair. And a lot of times, I was just so medicated. And two days into it, three days into it, I got a little better. I got it better, and then... With all the help of the praying and people coming in, praying in the spirit, and you're going to make it, Glenn, and we need you here, and God brought you up here, and you're going to be okay. And My dad's ministry in Boston was not done among the Charles River elite. No way. It was done among the Goodwill Hunting, Mystic River, Gone Baby Gone crowd that lived just north of Boston proper. That meant some really hard things that he needed to love people through, and he did it beautifully. Everything we did was the church. It was very important. Every minute, even though I did electrical work, I was there day and night. Margaret was working in the office, and she was there day and night, and the kids were in some of the early classes before they went to Dom Savio. So we went at it full speed. And one of the Things that was a kind of traumatic for was Mark and I was one of the girls that was in her singles and got her pregnant. Ooh, not a lot of people knew that, but that was a real tough one. But she wanted to have the baby. And her mother was saying, please, please, no, no, don't have it. She says, Mom, I want to have this baby. So Margaret and I hooked up with some um, workers in that field, what to do, how to do this. This is all new to us. And we worked out with a beautiful couple to take the baby. And uh, during that time, we spent, they were over our house having dinner, and she was getting close and close to have that baby. And then she had a little boy, and he was adorable. And she says, well, I think it's time we met this couple. So we went to Lynn Hospital, Morgan and I, her and her mother, and there was a couple, and there were other leaders that were part of the transition of the baby, the workers, and it says, uh, there were a lot of rules. Once you do this, not your baby. You can't chase her down. You can chase him down. You can't find what the name is. You're letting this child go clear right to this family, and they will love, and they will raise and they would take this child. Are you ready to do that? And she says, I am. So she says, 
Pastor Glenn, can you come over here with me and pray a prayer on me? And then she handed me the baby. And then I walked in front of the couple and with the logistical people in the in the background. And I said, I would like to say a prayer. I prayed that, that God would bless this child and have a great home and a great family. And at the same time, the sadness that this young lady was giving up a child and being willing to do this. And we handed the baby over to the couple. We all hugged. They left. We were in the room alone, all crying together. And then he said, this is good. You did a good thing. My dad and mom were always, 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 always loving people. Because of my dad's history and his, his temperament, his way with people, he became really helpful to folks who were struggling with substance abuse. Both people who found themselves addicted to drugs and alcohol, but also people who were trying to live with and love those people to freedom and sanity. He has a thousand fun stories to tell about doing that work, but none is funnier than when a recovered addict pledged all of his earthly possessions, all of which fit in the trunk of his car that he was living in, to his new bride. One of our, my biggest ministries was the Life Group. It was a group for people that had addiction, whether they be alcohol, marijuana, heroin, and they were church kids. They were church people. They weren't people like off the street. They were they were our family, and uh, we had about eight helpers and workers. Some of them were clinical workers. They weren't just people like, let's take a guess how we can help these people. They had education in it. And the group grew and grew and grew. And there was this one guy, Bob. He was from Attleboro. He actually had a a uh, thing over his eye. You know, we used to call him the, pure, the, the pirate. And uh, he had a terrible time with, with drugs, his family everywhere. And drugs were a little different those days, but they were still taking people out. So it's a slow process of getting them out of addiction, getting them to trust Jesus. And even though there were failings and fallings and forgiveness over and over again, they'd come in and say, oh, I picked up. And we gathered around them and said, you know, you're going to be all right. Uh, the disciples failed and they got picked back up. You know, that was God's, Jesus's ministry. So meanwhile, Kathy and Bob had this little thing together. They kind of liked each other. And she was a, her mother was an alcoholic, and uh, so we all had an, a, a closeness to drinking and drugs and what it's done to our life. And So within maybe perhaps six weeks, Bob said, you know, I'm really falling in love with Kathy, and I'm, I'm going to ask you to marry her, her to marry me. Do you think that would be a good idea? And, of course, you will be the, uh, the lead pastor. I says, I think it's awesome. Ask her. <laughs> and then he asked her, and she said, I would love to. It came time for the wedding. Bob had his 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 couple of men, and Kathy was beautiful. She was all dressed up. And, you know, the ceremony, you do it. And um, Bob, are you going to take Kathy? And, yes, Kathy, you're going to take Bob. And sure we are. And 
So it says, then that part where it says, you know, that all the things you have that you endow, you give to your wife. So there was a little chuckles, and then there was more chuckles, and we all started laughing, including Kathy and Bob. Why, Glenn, do you say that? Well, Bob was living in his car. Everything he had was in his trunk, which is practically nothing. So we all thought it was so funny that he didn't have nothing, so he gave her his car <laughs> and everything in it. So it was like a, a long-time um, joke. Not a joke, but a long-time thing that was so cute, you know. One of the highlights of my dad's time at Parkway was the juggernaut of a softball team that we had. With him pitching and me at short and James in center and Dino P. Brogna behind the plate and Johnny Manfred at first, we won back to back to back to back championships. We were untouchable, almost unscorable on. But let's just say that our first season did not kick off as expected. We started a softball team. There was a lot of tough guys. And um, tough guys in trade, tough guys around. And we needed to get into a league. So one of the guys that Margaret worked for, Lewis, he lived in Revere. He had some connections. He says, you know, there's a league in East Boston. It's not a Christian league. It's not a Catholic league. But it's a good softball league. And it was like, and we know that Glenn coming up here was a very good player and his sons. So... We started a team, we got in it, we got all involved, and we had practices, and we were having fun, we were hitting the ball, and obviously I became the pitcher, and I don't know if Matthew and James were in at the time, they might have been um, 9 and 10, they might have been a little bit too young. So we got in this league, and we played at Logan Airport, where the planes land, and we played this team, you got it, the Blazing Saddles. And the Blazing Saddles was, you know what, a bar. Most of these teams were bar teams, guys who hung out. So our first game, our very first game, we played Blazing Saddles. And for some reason, they didn't like us immediately. We were a church, you know, like these goody-goody church guys. And uh, we're going to crush you. Well, the game didn't go that way. We started winning and piling on runs, and there was quite a few spectators, and the catcher was having a heckling time with one of the player's sister. And I don't know what happened, but he threw his, his, his hat down, his face mask. He went over to the side where our, where our spectators was and slapped this lady's face so loud you could hear it 10 places over, and she fell. Unfortunately for him, her brother was right next to her. He punched him square in the face, and down he went. All of a sudden, everybody got up. We were, we, we were not batting. And so all of the players on the Blazing Saddles came at us, and all of us came at the Blazing Saddles. And we were pushing and tuffling and tussling. And I'm saying to myself, where's the umps? The umps got in the car and left. Wow, so how are we going to stop this thing, you know? And this one guy in right field, 
he hated me. Why? I struck him out twice. And he came right behind me. He says, you know, I want to whack you with this belt. But, you know, I appreciate your athleticism. So we're going to make believe we're fighting. We're just going to tussle around. I'm not going to hit you because I'll probably break your neck. And then finally, calm, settled, and they were not playing. We did win. So Louie called up the the uh, the the runners of the league and says, "I'm sorry to say this, but we will not be playing again." Despite all the joys and laughter and gospel wakefulness that attended my parents' time at Parkway, it did not end well. The church lost its way, clouded with visions of worldly grandeur. And my dad, who is anything but prosperity gospel polished, became more and more out of step with where things were headed. And rather than being heard and appreciated and honored for all of the work that he was doing in the trenches with people, I mean the trenches, instead he was shamed and marginalized and even villainized, and eventually they had no choice but to leave this church that they loved so well behind. My dad speaks gently about it, but I was there, and it was wrong, and Christ knows. As the uh, eight years were coming to a close, we had felt as though that the church wasn't quite going in the direction that we would have liked to have seen it go. There also was a push to move the church about 15 miles up Route 1 to Topsfield. And we had the same thing happen in our church in Brooklyn, and we were totally not for it. We felt there was much more ministry and revere. And so we weren't on board with that. And so many other things, Margaret was singing, and um, somehow they took her off the singing group, felt as though she might have gained a little bit of weight. I never really dressed like suit, tie, sharp. I was still had some of the hippie Christian image in me, and that didn't go well with them. So we drifted a little bit. Um, after the services on Sunday, Margaret and I would um, talk about it, and we'd say, where did they get that from? I don't, I don't get it. And then there were some internal issues with some of the leadership that we weren't part of, but we knew there was a problem. Also, our kids had both entered uh, college. They weren't there, so it was really like her and I alone. And then when we first moved there, we bought a house in Everett. Cute little house. I loved it. had a garage. They wanted us to move to a more prestigious place to show, you know, the prosperity of God and this is the this is what you get serving God, you know you don't get a second fiddle, so that was always an issue. Uh, we 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 didn't we didn't felt as though we wanted to do that, and then there was a time they bought me two suits, said you know, we're gonna suit you up, trim your beard, cut your hair, and kind of look all like us. So we had known that our time was short. We didn't have any idea. I was still doing electrical trade, so I was making money. We didn't let anybody know. Uh, we had uh, those leaders in the church that we were about to debark. 
to to leave, and that day come, and Paul told the church that uh, this would be Margaret and Glenn's and his family's last service, and uh, it was almost a riot. We had made such bosom buddy Christian friends; they weren't told, they weren't let know, they didn't get a reason why we weren't going anywhere. So that was a real tough time for the church, and there was uh, questions. Um, who made that decision? Why? They didn't do nothing wrong. And that was a hot topic, a hot fire for a while. So we gave our resignation. We just knew that uh, our time there had come. We weren't expecting to move back to New York or nothing. We were just going to go and wait on God and see what he had for us. So there it is. Eight super happy years of very fruitful life and ministry that ended abruptly and would send my dad spiraling into the darkest years of his life. Thanks for listening to this episode of Yeah, That's My Dad. If you are loving these stories or think they could be beneficial to anybody that you know, it is easy to subscribe to the podcast and also to see pictures that accord with all these different seasons of my dad's life, all you got to do is go to cruise, K-I-U-S-E, dot studio, backslash, dad. <laughs>